Welcome to the Permaculture for the Future podcast. I'm your host, Josh Robinson. The world is full of negative news, and the planet seems to be in an ecological crisis. And this can be downright disheartening and disenfranchising because we feel that there's nothing that each one of us can do as an individual that can make any difference. Well, I'm here to provide a different perspective, to tell a new story. The Permaculture for the Future podcast is all about spreading positive and impactful stories, tips, and ways that each one of us can transition into a regenerative lifestyle where we can make an ecological impact. We talk about simple ways to make lifestyle changes as we interview authors, teachers, and other folks that are collectively healing ourselves and the planet. So if you want to make an ecological impact, stick around because this podcast is for you. Welcome to episode number 10 of the Permaculture for the Future podcast. I'm Josh Robinson. Wow, we have made it to episode 10, which should be a little bit of a celebratory moment. But given the state of things in the world right now, there are much bigger pressing issues. And I'm sure many of you around the world that are listening to this podcast, wherever you may be, are a little bit scared, not sure what's happening. If you're anything like me, this whole situation with COVID-19, coronavirus, has really gotten me to think a lot and reflect upon permaculture and what this means I mean, I'm sure a lot of you right now are, are seeing these rippling effects that are just rolling through all of our societies right now. And we just don't even know. Like we're being asked to distance ourselves from friends and family, uh, people that we know. And it's just creating so much. You know, many of us might even be out of work. You don't know where your next paycheck's coming from. You don't know if you're going to get sick or if your family's going to get sick and then what that means. And that all of that goes in to create a really, really scary situation. But know that you're not alone and that we're going to get through this. Over the next few weeks, I have some interviews lined up with a number of folks that I want to talk about permaculture and the coronavirus and really looking at this as a, a moment to learn from. Because if there's one thing that we can really gain from this is really some perspective on the whole situation. Because there are solutions that could emerge from this that could be incredibly beautiful. And even as we go into this hardship, and as we go into this, this position that we've never been in before, know that that is where I think permaculture really shines. Permaculture does provide solutions. And in fact, much of permaculture, design system as a whole, is almost like it's been set up to work with these types of events. So I want to be able to share those stories with you as well. And we'll, you know, over the next couple of weeks, we're going to talk with a couple of great people and just get a little bit different perspective. Now, on today's show, I have a real legend. This is somebody that's been doing this work, 
this earth repair work, trying to make the world a better place for over four decades. And he's somebody that I've admired and looked up to, read his books, checked out his work, and have just been so inspired because he's literally changed the way that we can look at cleaning up water and water-based ecosystems. His name is Dr. John Todd. Now, his work in ecological design began in 1971 when he co-founded the New Alchemy Institute with the mission to restore lands, protect the seas, and inform the earth stewards. He began designing biomes and bioshelters, structures for the cultivation of foods and other biological products, utilizing sunlight and solar heat. And the best known of these was the Ark of Prince Edward Island in Maritime Canada, and described in the book, Tomorrow is Our Permanent Address, which he co-authored with his wife, Nancy Jack Todd. In 1986, John began work on the first generation of eco-machines, which are living technologies designed to grow food, generate fuels, treat waste that include toxic materials, and restore impaired environments. This work was described in his book, From Eco-Cities to Living Machines, which is the first book that I read by John, and I can't recommend it enough. So inspiring. And he's gone on to continue this work throughout the world, uh, restoring waterways in places like China and India, and even here in the United States. Beginning in 2015, John Todd began to work on the design of living technologies to protect and restore the inshore oceans, and it has culminated in the design of small, wind-powered ships called ocean restorers. These carbon-neutral vessels are being developed for marine research and for the purification of polluted seawater. And his latest book, Healing Earth, An Ecologist's Journey of Innovation and Stewardship, was published in 2019. It includes concepts and technologies for sequestering carbon and for climate stabilization. Wow, so much here. And like I said, John has a wealth of information. And in today's podcast, I'm going to let him tell his story of who he is and how he came to be. And we're just going to let him kind of roll with it. Welcome, John. Hi, Josh. We could start off just uh, getting into your background and, you know, how you kind of got into some of the work and some of the projects that you're doing. Be great. Then you could talk about the book and then we'll just kind of see where it really goes. Okay. My background is really eclectic. I live very close to the literally a few hundred feet from the shore of western end of Lake Ontario in Canada. So I was very close to water, ships, and all of that from the very beginning. And in the area where we lived, as a fairly sensitive child, at least environmentally sensitive, I started to see all kinds of things going wrong. You know, marshes drained for golf courses, uh, pollution, and... uh, and uh, uh, deforestation of hillsides up to the north of our house, and et cetera, et cetera. And I became very, very depressed by this sort of rampaging and ravaging of the world. 
And I, I had two good things going. My mother was very sensitive to the land. And as we drive around, she'd talk about this and that, and then relate it to architecture and how that was integrated to the landscape and so on. So I began to see the world around me less abstractly and more clearly. And then my father, realizing that I was at an emotional crisis, found a series of books about a, an amazing place called Malabar Farm. And Malabar Farm is in southern Ohio. And it was purchased by an American writer who lived in rural France. And the World War II was breaking out, and, and he left Europe knowing what was happening and settled in this area only to discover that in the decades since he'd left as a, as a young man, the hillsides were eroded, the farm forests were badly degraded, you know, grazing cattle and all kinds of things. And the community had gone. There was not enough production there to support, you know, two or three or four families. And so he set out to accomplish the restoration of, of Malabar Farm, which would, it was several thousand acres overall. And uh, it's the most amazing story of using this agricultural knowledge from France and some of the modern ecological knowledge coming out of the Early Soil Conservation Service the USDA thing. And uh, the most remarkable thing happened, and it changed my life. Within a decade, he had created a thousand years, equivalent of a thousand years of topsoil. And I'd never heard of anything like that before. He'd also brought back the springs. And mm -hmm. so it had been a country of springs no longer, and then he brought them back. And there's just all of these stories, one after another, of life returning. You know, it's the kind of thing every permaculture knows, knows about. But this was just new. And uh, so I started feeling better and I started to look at the landscape. Even, you know, I'm now 14, 15, something like that. Um, and so I decided to go off and study agriculture. Wow. And I what, to, what year is this, John? Well, I went to study agriculture in the fall of 1957. Okay. A long time ago. Mm -hmm. You know, Moses had recently died, I, I would say that. <laughs> but anyway, when I got to ag school, I was appalled. And I'll just tell you one story that our agricultural economics guy said to us in our first class. He lined us all up and he said, Those of you who live on a farm, that is paid for, you go to the right-hand side of the room. And then he said, those of you who are well-to-do, you go over to the left-hand side of the room. <laughs> a few guys kind of shuffled across awkwardly. Mm. And then he looked at all the rest, of the, the rest of us and said, and the rest of you, you're going to be uh, pesticide and fertilizer and other inputs into agricultural sales. Wow. Oh boy, was I Because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> of course my father wasn't a farmer, my father wasn't rich. But what happened at the same time, which is kind of fun, I had two or three professors who were brilliant and world class. One was an evolutionist, 
And uh, so I got really uh, top crack training in evolution. Another was a soil ecologist from from uh, Scotland, from Edinburgh, and the list just went on. And so with that, I discovered basically applied ecology. Mm. And then when it came to, felt I didn't know enough when I graduated, so I stayed on to do a master's in uh, parasitology, studying my professor was one of the lead people doing malaria research throughout World War II. And uh, then he went on in the middle of my thesis to become a big person in the World Health Organization. Um, Great guy. And uh, so uh, that happened. We had a very colorful kind of student life and uh, with lots of international students and and, uh, a French brother-in-law to spice things up. (laughs) Then I decided that I took a job as a consultant, and we did environmental analysis work from coast to coast in Canada, all the way from New Brunswick to uh, the Fraser River in British Columbia. And that was very interesting. I learned a lot to how to determine whether an environment was an aquatic environment was healthy or not. So I then went on to Ann Arbor University of Michigan and took a doctorate studying a combination uh, of animal animal behavior, uh, fisheries, and oceanography. It was a kind of a mixed thing that I was doing, but it was all wet. And uh, really fell in love with it and uh, started to make discoveries around animal behavior, animal communication. And uh, so it was, it was a very lively time. And I published in science several articles and, you know, the top of the ladder. But I was getting a little bit restless. By this time, we had a, the beginnings of a family, two out of three. And I decided I wanted to, I'd read uh, The Sea of Cortez and uh, a couple of other books. And I was just absolutely fascinated. And when San Diego State offered me a job that involved avocados and oranges and uh, access to the Sea of Cortez, how could I turn it down? But once we got there, we began to realize that what we wanted to do, and this is kind of the same sort of thing that was happening to Bill Mollison around the same time, was not really at that moment uh, possible within the university system. I had been, uh, I was, even though I was very young and very inexperienced, I was appointed the associate dean of the College of Science there. And, and the more we looked around us, um, and the V initially was Nancy Jack Todd and my colleague and roommate from the University of Michigan, Bill McClarney, that, that we were thinking about architecture, energy, and, and uh, traditional knowledge. And we were thinking about modern agriculture and renewable energy and uh, you know, advanced management of water. We had all these things that we were interested in, inspired by a couple of books. And 
found we just couldn't do it in the university system at the time. So we created the New Alchemy Institute. And the history of that organization is is written up, and I must say beautifully, um, in Nancy's book, uh, A Safe and Sustainable World. My, my students at the University of Vermont, where, I, where I'm a emeritus professor now, loved it. They, uh, it kind of connected them to uh, the big picture. So we decided we would have to leave academia. And later on, a number of other friends and colleagues also started doing that. There was uh, um, David Orr, who created Meadow, Meadow, um, Meadow Creek. There was Wes Jackson, who created the Land Institute. And there was Amory Lovins, who created the Rocky Mountain Institute. And uh, it was kind of a, a period where... We were institutionalized. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, um, the, uh, uh, that's how this sort of trying to create um, new institutions began. And but I didn't want to give up my ocean work. So I also took a full time job here in Woods Hole as an oceanographer, as a scientist at the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution so that and uh, so that I could have a hand in both world. After four or five years, it became impossible to do these two jobs. So in the end, I opted for the New Alchemy Institute. and. Uh, and um, and which I think was a very good thing for all of us. We we worked there and had a had a uh, had a really wonderful creative time. And, had a great time while we were doing it. Yeah, and uh, as Bill McClarney says, uh, and have a great time while you're doing it. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So anyway, um, um, then. And I'm giving you the real, real short snapshot. So we were doing architecture, agriculture, energy, waste treatment, soil restoration, blah, blah, blah. We got to do it all. And as long as we could keep ourselves economically alive. And we, we ended up having a few patrons that helped us stay alive. A number of years, Bill McClarney had started to work in Central America and Costa Rica and established NI, which is the new alchemy in Spanish. And he started doing some amazing work that continues to this day. The, I think you can see at the website, ANAI, some marvelous stuff. And this is Nancy and myself. We befriended Margaret Mead, who at that time was probably the most famous scientist in the world. And she was president of the American Association for the Advancement of Science. And she adopted the two of us. And so we went with her to, to the Middle East, where she had done her work. And, uh, and she got to know what we were doing and knew. And we got to know what she was doing and knew. And it kind of was very yeasty. And so after being in... Java and then in Bali, we got to know each other very well and to talk to each other about what needed doing in the world. And as she was beginning, she got sick. And so we visited her 
And she basically told us, you need to take the ideas of new alchemy and spread them around the world. And that's your marching orders. And she was very bossy. So if you didn't pay attention, if you didn't do it, she said you were in trouble. <laughs> and so we did. We created an organization called Ocean Arcs, A-R-K-S International. And the website is oceanarcsint.org. Um, and that, and we began to do work literally in many places around the world. Uh, I think beginning first with uh, Guyana and South America, where we worked with fishermen and we started developing high-performance sail-powered working fishing vessels with some famous naval architects. And then that just kind of spread from South America to Central America, where we also worked. And then a very important period in our lives happened. It was would be in the later 80s, it became obvious we lost a couple of close friends to cancer. We were confronted with this thought that we had so badly damaged our groundwater here on Cape Cod that people were beginning to be affected by this polluted plumes, so to speak, because it's all, it's all septic tanks and uh, the rainwater is the only real source of new water here on the Cape other than seawater. So we began to do something that was really turned out to be quite remarkable. We created the first of the eco machines. One was created in Vermont at a ski resort. The other was created here to protect groundwater. And we started to ecologically design complex living systems that we hoped would treat these wastes. We, we had literally tens of thousands of species that we collected from over a dozen wild environments. And we put them into these tanks. And uh, these tanks were clear-sided so that sunlight could pass through the sides as well as the top. And lo and behold, we began to find that this water that we were treating, this is in a Cape Cod town, which had all of the priority pollutants in it, and they were percolating down from surface ponds unlined into the groundwater, that we were able to remove them mm -hmm. rather quickly within a 10-day period. Uh, and it was just so remarkable. And all of a sudden, we knew firsthand that if at least three or four separate kinds of environments contribute their life forms, in other words, a salt marsh, a stream, a lake, a wet bog, you know, and you just bring life from these places and put them into the vats, that um, that they would reorganize themselves around the waste and create new communities actually never seen before, even though all the organisms were identifiable, the communities had never been seen. Mm -hmm. So that, that was, and the results were so amazing. Yeah, that no one believed me. It turned into a little bit of a hullabaloo. The, the state of Massachusetts fined me, uh, for carrying out these experiments. And, and, uh, and uh, but then the head of the 
federal EPA in Washington sent up one of his senior scientists to look at what we were doing. And he concluded that what we were doing was bona fide and that our results done by EPA certified labs were also accurate. And so the state had to back off and the federal government gave me the first Chico Mendez Memorial Award. He was the rubber tapper who was murdered in Brazil many years, many years ago, but was a, um, a environmental hero as a consequence. And so from that point on, we started to work all over the place, all throughout the U.S., Canada, Brazil, uh, Australia, South Africa. My son worked uh, in uh, uh, Saudi Arabia, and we worked in China. And it just kind of, the idea kind of spread. There was a lot of resistance from the conventional wastewater treatment civil engineering community. John, can you just uh, talk a little bit about that side of it? I mean, there's a lot of really amazing components here. And like, as you've been talking here, my mind's just been kind of like racing. So you've, you've had the, these insights over these years, and it seems like it was really driven from this uh, understanding of ecology mm-hmm. and a love for ecology. And for me, ecology has always been this kind of like teacher right, of living ecosystems, living systems, and these integrations and these connections that form, you are utilizing that in this particular case to clean up water. And that's actually how I first heard about you and your work was through these eco-machines, which are essentially just passive systems that are utilizing different forms of aquatic biology, whether it's the microorganisms within the water or plants or uh, fish and other larger organisms, correct? Yeah, we had we had one rule of thumb, and that was that namely all of the kingdoms of life had to be represented with one okay. or other species in our systems. Okay. So, but essentially then you are just working with living systems and letting them essentially create the connections, utilizing what was, the in this case, these pollutants that were in the water they were taking that and turning it into food for themselves and, or complexing whatever that is into other yeah. positions or, I mean, just transforming that waste product. And at that time, it seems like, the and really for a lot of the U.S. and the world in general, we're still kind of looking at these very much like institutional, mechanical-based cleaning systems for the most part of our water, yeah. correct? And in uh, fact, I'm currently working very hard to develop a plan to clean the the uh, highly polluted uh, canals in India and wow. uh, and to try and figure out ways where we can minimize the amount of physical infrastructure that it costs lots of money and maximizes the ecological dominance of whatever these living technologies that we create are going to be and uh, it's absolutely fascinating. My son, who I think you would really enjoy talking to, he's based in the Thousand Oaks area of California. Mm. He's already taking lakes that are contaminated with the, you know, the toxic algal forms and reversing the disaster. I think there's a Lago Margarita down just north of you, quite close. 
Okay. And Anaheim, another place, I think it's called North Lake. He's got a whole bunch of them. He has concluded, he also has this amazing wastewater treatment plant in Santa Paula. It's really ecologically designed. He took an old sewage treatment plant that wasn't working. He converted it to an eco-machine. He did so, and this is hard to believe, at about 10% of the cost of conventional civil engineering. Wow. And he is taking sewage and doing such a good job that he's able to resell the water as uh, California Title 22, uh, I think it's 22, uh, water for agriculture. That's so incredible. he's doing a 100% conversion. I think he'd like to get more of these going up the spine of California, but he would be a, a wonderful guy to do a podcast with. And he's got an interesting background. He's ship's captain, mate on tugboats out of New Orleans and Newark, New Jersey and Boston. And he was, his background is maritime. But when he was a kid, he hung out at New Alchemy and learned all these techniques by osmosis. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, if you need to connect with him, I can get you his coordinates. Oh, that'd be great. And he and his wife are very interested in permaculture. So you've got a lot in common. So where did I, where did I end up? You asked me a question. We'll start off again. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was really, I mean, and you, you've kind of been answering that. I'm, I'm really fascinated about these eco machines and how, you know, oftentimes in permaculture, we're looking at, you know, the ecosystems to learn how we can kind of design and work within the parameters yeah. of living systems. And we know that if we can closer align with these natural processes, uh, our lives just become a lot easier. And a lot of those things that we consider our current problems, like pollution, really, you know, one of the, the insights is that most often these are just, you know, resources that are either in excess or aren't being consumed by other organisms within that ecosystem. And yet, yeah, and yet when we look at the way that we conventionally treat, whether it's sewage or other wastewater, it seems to be there's this huge disconnect between like the way that this has been happening on this planet for eons. And yeah. I mean, and, not... and the way that we tend to do it, which incurs a huge expense. There's all these other problems with it. And it just never seems to work as well as the living system that is already around us. It's absolutely true. The one thing about this that's really interesting, if you go down and look at your local sewer plant, you oh, see right. all that aeration going on and the amount of energy it takes to maintain a positive oxygen regime in that water. But none of the organisms that are being used to clean up the water produce photosynthesis and mm -hmm. oxygen as a byproduct. So wow. there's another huge expense. Whereas if you have an eco-machine, it is dominated, dominated, at least in certain sections of the treatment path with photosynthetic organisms. They're scarfing up CO2 and converting it to oxygen through either the microalgae, of which there are many species, or equally important, many of the higher plants, like bulrushes, who not only provide surface area for beneficial bacteria, they also themselves transport oxygen down through the root hairs into the water. And it's just like a win-win-win for 
for nature and for the process and for the people involved. The wastewater engineering community is very conservative. It's driven by, in part, things. Motors, pumps, filters, aerators, clarifiers, you know, the list goes on and on. So if you're trying to design a, a, a regular uh, wastewater treatment plant, it might cost you $10 a gallon mm. to build a system, let alone operate it. But if you use a constructed wetland and you have the space to use a constructed wetland, you can come in at maybe $10, not $100 to solve the problem. I mean, you have to have the space and that's a value. Um, but then there are even ways in which we can shrink the space without taking away the bounty of nature itself. Yeah. I mean, this seems like it's such important work. I mean, right now we have a huge population on this planet and water is a fundamental necessity for all you know living organisms, including our, yeah. ourselves. And and it doesn't matter if we're talking about kind of developed countries or underdeveloped countries. We all are dealing with water and it's and the pollution in in different ways. But you've been working on these very simple, low tech solutions by just employing, you know, the these different organisms that we have around us. And it seems like there's a huge potential there. I've been thinking a lot over these last few days about just the issues of our culture and our society as we've kind of moved and delegated a lot of our uh, resources to the the whole globalized planet. And we're seeing right now the fragility of that. You know, when one piece kind of gets uh, interrupted, there's, you know, these catastrophic ramifications. But what you're talking about in terms of water cleaning also lends itself to multiple decentralized, localized systems that are going to be multifunctional as well. Because as we're, you know, we're working with our local indigenous microorganisms and plants that we can add in there that are cleaning our water, we could be doing that throughout our entire, you know, whether it's small scale at the home to, you know, larger neighborhood scales and all of that. I'm curious, like, how you see the application of this playing out. I mean, I know that you've been working on large projects, you know, whether it's institutional or, or some of these uh, river systems in other countries where they do have legitimate concern for water, whether it's just, I mean, catastrophic pollution you know, can you talk a little bit about maybe how you're you're integrating that into those types of systems? Well, let me, yeah, let me start by saying I've been very strongly influenced by Bill McClarney, the co-founder of New Alchemy with mm-hmm. Nancy and myself. And, uh, and he wrote a book, which was the Bible called Aquaculture. And it was by three authors, Bardock, Ryther, and McClarney. McClarney wrote the book, and the two guys were the big profs, and, okay. and both very competent and knowledgeable. He then went on to write his opus, Magnus, um, and it was called Freshwater. I think it's called Freshwater Aquaculture. Okay, so too. It's uh, and uh, Bill McClarney is the is the guy, and in it he does this 
amazing analysis of how starting back two, three thousand years ago in China, that fish farmers began to learn how to fill niches. They learned very quickly that there are keystone species and they're not necessarily always the big toothed predator at the top. They might be little ones like a cluster of diatomaceous diatom algae that may also drive the whole micro microbiology, the whole system. And they began to learn how to create these polycultures. And to the best of my knowledge, they um, have really never been exceeded. What the, the Chinese did, and to a certain extent, the Indians as well, but the Chinese said, we are farming the pond. The pond is our unit. Its health will bring everything. Then they took different species and they have, there's over half a dozen of what they call the Chinese saprinids. They're called just commonly Chinese carps. They're not like the European carp that we have. They're, they're much more diverse. Hmm. And they began to figure out ways to create an environment which would have all of the niches adapted for each species. Some would be on the bottom, some would be open water, others would be grazers on the uh, sides of the ponds. It went on and on. And there was even one, the uh, white aimer or grass carp, that feeds on terrestrial vegetation like alfalfa or weeds. And, and so they had a very clear sense that you need to honor the integrity of the pond. And then they filled the niches. Then they figured out ways to make sure the system was never overwhelmed because if it's overwhelmed, you know, it collapses and has to start all over again. And it really is a lovely model. And I was so lucky to be hanging out with this guy and began to learn uh, this great several thousand years old legacy that, that we have. And um, it was really very liberating. Um, we've, we've also worked with something that I should mention, and that is dangerous chemicals. Um, and this work goes back many years. It, it, it started, well, it started on that, that pond on Cape Cod I told you about, but then it went to uh, trying to clean up the, the uh, highly polluted river in uh, Chattanooga, Tennessee. It was just Chattanooga Creek, I guess it's called. It was, it was the south, the love canal of the south. And it had all kinds of chemicals made from the making of pesticides and herbicides. It also had chemicals from the making of uh, weaponry, uh, munitions, on and on and on. And, and we began to use really complex ecological systems on a relatively small scale to prove that even the worst of chemicals could be treated. And I managed to get rid of DDT, which wasn't, is normally considered 50 years to, to make a dent in it, and managed to get the DDT removed to a, a much safer, less toxic chemical in about 60 days. Wow. And then a decade afterwards, uh, a doctoral student of mine, uh, Anthony McGinnis, 
using the same techniques, managed to get rid of a, a chemical called AEEA. It's a long, complicated name, but it's very toxic, and it was considered impossible to biodegrade. And he degraded it with a little eco-machine in 64 hours. Wow. That was his doctoral thesis. And what he discovered, this is this, this permaculturist in you would love, he discovered that he identified four species of bacteria who were doing, you know, 90% of the work. And he found that two of the four species had not been identified or were never been positively identified. They could not grow in labs, you know, on auger plates. And uh, what he found was that two of the species are only found on the roots of papyrus. Wow. And they were the heavy lifters. They, they probably originated from Egypt, you know, 100 years ago. Mm. And uh, so we just don't know what's out there. Yeah, and, which is even more reason that we can't be destroying things at the rate that we've been doing because I, we don't exactly. know what we don't know. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. We had a big pilot whale come in and beach just not far from our house here last week. And nobody knows what happened to it. It looked very, very healthy. And you know, I've just been thinking ever since I saw the photograph of it on the front of the the, the local paper that, you know, what went wrong? No evidence of, of you know, stranding, I mean, of, of uh, damage from nets or traps or any of that stuff. And why did it beach in a place where whales are almost never seen? It, it happens to be in Buzzards Bay, which is the side we live on. You just realize how, how utterly uh, mysterious it is. Yeah, uh, what's going on out there? I will say that there's there's one story which I mentioned in the book, Healing Earth, and I think it's an important one. I had a scientist ask me from that first experiment I told you about, mm -hmm. how do you know all those food webs? How do you know the species who contributes what to which? How do you get enough knowledge to work with them? And I said. I don't have enough knowledge to work with them, neither does anybody else on the planet. But we need to back up a little bit and realize that for three and a half billion years, nature through evolution has been inventing, trial and erroring, creating new relationships, new symbiosis, new repulsions, and they probably unknowable number of interactions have taken place for, let's just say, the last... 500 million years. I mean, uh, fishes have been around that long, maybe, maybe a little longer. Um, the, uh, yeah, when did the dinosaurs die out? Well, I can't remember. But sturgeon were alive and well mm. when the dinosaurs were thumping around. Wow. So what we have is, is this idea that evolutionary mechanisms were at work are at work, and they somehow have the mechanisms that allow nature to quickly invent. Now, I think one of the biggest worries for many people is, is how do we get 
natural ways of consuming the dreadful plastics, the microplastics, the nanoplastics in the water that are doing so much damage. My guess is there's some combination of plants, animals, and microbes that can do the job, but we haven't found them yet. I, I think people are looking for the magic bacterial species that will just, you know, eat them up like uh, uh, a popsicle or something. <laughs> now, in your experience, I mean, you've been on kind of like the front lines here for a long time of trying out a lot of these different combinations. You know, we're talking about complex ecologies with a lot of different interplay. And let me just even step back. So you also come from a little bit of, well, not a little bit, but quite a, a large academic background. And from what I see in you know, academia, a lot of like the sciences and a lot of our universities are really pushing people towards these uh, very linear tracks of kind of diving deeper and deeper into more minute areas. Yeah. Now you were in that, but you also were studying ecology, which in some ways I see ecology being this, it, it you know, while it's in the sciences, it's really the study of the interactions and the connections and that diversity, which is a little bit more complex. And if that's like your kind of guiding principles, you're coming up with and, and working with a different realm that's hard to quantify on the same terms that we're, we're looking at in the university. Yes. yes. Also, the, the reward system in science is, is skewed. You alluded to it when you started saying that you get into a certain field and you begin to learn more and more about less and less. And the ultimate endpoint is to know an infinite amount about nothing. Mm -hmm. But it's the way the reward system, it's the way people get promoted. I have a daughter who's a neuroscientist at the University of British Columbia. And uh, she just got tenure last year. But she had to do a whole bunch of, of you know, make her reputation by really honing in on a section of the field that, uh, that made her unique. It was a very kind of narrowing process. Now that she's got tenure, she's working on issues like the connection between neurobiology and dementia and, and you know, the big pictures mm. that she's currently involved in and loving. I think it's very interesting. The permaculture movement is, is there's a lesson in it. I mean, the agricultural community is made up of a very diverse group of people, you know, ranging from um, hydroponics geeks in tents in the desert to biodynamic people who are, you know, paying attention to the moon and to the cycles of soil and microorganisms that they stuff into the horn of a cow it's i mean it's it's all there and and everything else in between but what permaculture has done and i've gone through a kind of a an evolution in my attitude towards it at one time maybe 10 years ago i was a, a bit critical of it first of all having been completely inspired by the the writings and the books of bill mollison and and the others uh, just absolutely wonderful the way they could take a big canvas and say, okay, we're going to start here and we're going to go out there and do this and do that. I loved it. For a while there, there was a, there was a 
a tendency amongst permaculturists, because they were all on early learning curves, mm -hmm. to not go for the economic. In other words, not create farms, permaculture farms that supported families and maybe even communities. Now that seems to be changing and uh, that, that is being talked about. But the other interesting thing that I like is that they're not, they're not tied to the academic community, even though it's taught in some universities like the University of Vermont. And I think you said, uh, out in Arizona. Yep. University um, of Oregon as well. But, uh, but what it does have is, is developed a community who are all teaching each other. And this is what I have seen over the last decade that I really like. I mean, of course, there's sort of a little rivalries. Oh, did you hear this guy? He can throw this on top of a palm tree or, you know, all that kind of stuff, which is wonderful. But the fact that there's constant learning going on, and the experts are becoming the practitioners. And that opening up, I think, bodes very well. And I think it'd be much easier for a permaculturist to, uh, to be a carbon farmer. Because mm -hmm. they know the plants who, and processes that sequester carbon and store it in more stable forms and, and so on and so forth. So, uh, and... I'm now beginning to work out in the Sinai Desert, and the the uh, there's almost nothing. It's a desert, and some communities of varying degrees of safeness or not safeness. But there are also out there a couple of permaculture uh, projects in the desert uh, that started in Australia, and they are beacons throughout the Middle East what's possible how to get the desert to sing again it's interesting yeah well and that's really what drives me and i'm assuming drives you to some degree is to you know obviously there's a lot of problems that we're dealing with in the world and and that can just make you feel like there's nothing that you can do but the the common theme in people that are actually making a difference is that they're willing to just try to start to do something yeah. Like you, rather than, you know, getting into the agriculture realm and it's like, okay, you could choose to go down that pesticide and herbicide realm, or you could say, well, no, I actually want to make the world a better place. And maybe there's another way. I don't quite know what that is yet, but I'm willing to put myself out there and willing to try to experiment. No, that's a very interesting, one of the reasons why I wrote Healing Earth, which is also wonderfully edited by Nancy Jack, <laughs> is, is, is I wanted to create a book. First of all, when you look at it, it's relatively small. It's got 16 chapters. They're fairly short. It's lightweight, so it can go in a pack sack. This is all in my mind as it was being developed. What I was hoping to do, and I don't know whether I'm going to be successful, was to inspire a whole new wave of people who commit themselves to this earth. Mm -hmm. That's what I wanted to do. That's why I was writing it, you know, warts and all, you know, yeah. 
and uh, and uh, why uh, you know Janine Benyus sort of is so positive about how all of us can find a way to engage in this transformation, even if we're without money and without land. There there are ways for all of us to become engaged. And I hope Healing Earth gets that message across. I'm up against a couple of things. One, I can't do a, an audio book because it's got 87 photographs and drawings of systems and possibilities and experiments. Mm-hmm. So an audio book is out. And so the question is, how do you get people to, of this current coming of age generation to read? And, and I don't have the answer. I think the closest thing that we come to right now is what you're doing, you know, is podcasts with or without visuals. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but I wish it wasn't so, because, you know, if you look at, uh, in 1949, uh, the Sand County Almanac oh. was published by Aldo Leopold and it has sold well over a million books, but m- in the early days mostly, because it transformed people's idea about their relationship with nature. So out of it comes the Sierra Club, the Audubon. You just go down through the list. They were all inspired by Sand County Almanac. As and, was I. Yeah. <laughs> we yeah. <all> <laughs> yeah. And that's the story. So I don't quite have the answers. And sometimes little bits and pieces are not good enough. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and I think right now it seems like to make an impact, we need to be able to really inspire people to want to learn to do something, right? And the book is a a piece of that. And and the podcast could be another piece of that where we're having this conversation uh, about the work that you're doing. You could fire people up around that to the point where they can get out there and, you know, dive a little bit deeper into that book with, you know, knowing that that's something that's going to really be uh, impactful yeah. uh, for them. You know, and particularly, I, you know, I mean, we can look at this issue right now with the coronavirus and having to basically stop life as we know it in terms of being able to get out there. But that also, you know, is in some ways a little bit of a, a blessing and it allows us to maybe slow down to take a little bit of time to really reflect on those things that are meaningful for us, you know, and our families. And, you know, I, I'm assuming that many of us are going to have a little bit more time to be able to maybe read a book or yeah. you know, oh, dive that's, down into this. That's a, that's a thought. So the healing earth can be got, um, hopefully from your local bookstore. But yeah, I'll, I'll link to it so in the show notes. It's also distributed by Penguin Random House. And so. Okay. Well, John, I didn't want to take up a whole lot of your time. I guess, like, maybe one last kind of question I have for you yeah. is really, I'm curious because you've been in this field for, for decades now doing this work. I'm curious about how you see the future, you know, of this, this planet. Like, are you, what, what's really motivating you and driving you to kind of continue to do this work? Well, it's quite simple. I believe we can stabilize climate, that we can regenerate the whole planet, and that we don't have to have refugees. We can 
control numbers through more sane ways. And, uh, you know, within the healing of the planet is really the restoration of so many things on so many different levels. That's why I'm very optimistic. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, um, have you seen John Liu's uh, Green Gold? Oh, it's incredible. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. the projects that we're, you know, that everybody is working towards there are so inspiring. Yeah. And there's now, uh, there's now some uh, conservation, ecological conservation camps in California, two yeah. or three. You have to go on, I think the website is commonland.nl meeting Holland, and it will tell you about the projects in California. Yeah. And if people want to reach out and, and kind of find out more of your work besides the Healing Earth book, where can they find out more information about some of the things that you... Well, there, there is uh, our not-for-profit, which publishes... Nancy publishes a publication that I think a lot of people would like to see. Uh, it's called Annals of Earth. And it can be, it can be gotten through the, uh, the, the website, which is... Ocean Arcs Int, I-N-T, for international.org. Without the Int, you won't get there. Okay. And, uh, and there are lots of, lots of chance to, to peek in and see what's happening in various places and stuff like that. Wonderful. Well, I'll link to all that in the show notes so people can find out all that kind of stuff. Yeah. I, again, want to thank you so much for you know, taking this time. Uh, I wish you, uh, you know, all the health and looking into the future here and the unknown and hope that we can talk again soon. Yeah. Hopefully we get through all this Corona virus mm -hmm. stuff. And I'm sure I mentioned it earlier, but just to wrap things up, um, the book, uh, a safe and sustainable world by Nancy Jack Todd, that is uh, Island press. Great. Well, thank you, Josh. It's been a pleasure talking to you and, Maybe let's not make it the last time. Yeah, no. I, all, the, I, all the juicy stories are still in, in arrears here. Yeah, no, I'll be following up. I'd love to, you know, talk more. And, uh, you know, it sounds like talking with your son, too, is kind of local. Oh, yeah. Another. Yeah, you should, you should do that because he's got some great stories, great possibilities. Okay. Well, great. Well, that wraps up our episode today. I hope you were inspired. I hope you got something out of it. And I hope that you have some time to look at the positive things that we could be addressing right now, even if you're being asked to quarantine yourself. There's still opportunity. Really, we need to look for this connection. We need to work together. We need to kind of help our neighbors, help ourselves, help our families. So in the next coming weeks, you're going to hear a lot more about permaculture and the coronavirus. Uh, in the upcoming shows. Until then, stay safe, stay healthy, and continue to do the good work. And lastly, if you do get some value from this show, consider giving us a rating or a review on iTunes as it does help us reach a wider audience. And really, what we're trying to do is just to make the world a more regenerative place. All right, see you next week.